Romans chapter 2. You know, uh, the last couple of messages I gave were, were very weighty, very heavy. Um, as I had mentioned before, could be considered offensive, and that's certainly not my desire. Um, and I thought um, Sandy came in last week and gave that wonderful message of encouragement, very timely, and I thought that's great. He gets to swoop in and, and encourage everybody, and then I come back the next week and just drop bombs and more doom and gloom and... And uh, that's the way it is. But I'm glad we had that little reprieve there, that little respite, and he came with that encouraging word on how Jesus uh, does not quench a smoldering flax, a bruised reed he will not break. He's very gentle towards us, and, uh, and we need that so often in our lives. Uh, but today we're, we're getting back to Romans, and as I had mentioned already, we're in the portion of Romans where Paul is dealing with the sin nature of, of mankind, the the depravity of mankind. That's a word you've heard me use. And that is to say that, uh, that our nature, it's, it's wicked, it's depraved. And that apart from Christ, we are in bad shape. Now, let me just say this. When we talk about total depravity, that's a word that I'm, I'm going to talk about today, that does not mean that everybody in this room is as bad as they can possibly be. And that's, that's not what that word is trying to communicate. But the idea here is that every, every area of our life, every part of us, of our heart, our actions on some level is sin-tainted. It's in our nature. We are, we are corrupted by the fall. But God, who is rich in mercy, sought to intervene in our lives and to wash us and to make us new, to make us new creations in Christ Jesus. And that's the beauty of it all, is what God has done in light of our our fallen state. And so I talked about our human nature, Jeremiah 17:9. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can even understand how bad it really is? Nobody, because we ourselves are deceived by just how bad our hearts actually are. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which, uh, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So that was our condition. That was our state. By nature, children of wrath, rebellious against God, Slaves to sin, slaves to Satan, doing his will. And so then the natural outworking of that is sinful works. You know, sometimes people have the audacity to think that they're, they're good. You know, I'm really a good person. And you may be able to look at other people and compare yourself, but compared to God, no one is good. Nobody is good. We can't look at God and say, God, look at all the things I've done. Look at how good I am. We can't do that. In fact, God addresses that in Isaiah 64, 6. It says this, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And so our heart is depraved. It's wicked. Our actions are sin-tainted. Our works, our best works... So essentially what this is saying is that when you present to God your works and say, God, look at what I have done, God looks at that and says, that's filthy rags to me. 
Your righteousness is not righteousness at all. The only righteousness that really counts in God's sight is the righteousness of His Son on our behalf. And this is universal, guys. This is universal guilt. Romans 3, 10, 11, and 23 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul's making it very clear that this is the case of, of, of all human beings, the entire human race. We are under this. It's universal guilt. Which leads me to that term that I used just a few minutes ago, total depravity. Also known as complete inability. Complete inability. And that is to say that we don't have the ability to come to God on our own. We don't have the ability to please God. We're not seeking after God. We are rebels against God by nature. Jeremiah 13.23 He says, Can a leper change its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can no more reform your heart than a leopard can change its spots. It just is what it is. And we can't come to God on our own apart from His divine intervention in our lives. John chapter 6, verse 37 Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That is the condition of man. We won't come to God unless God intervenes graciously and draws us. Jesus said that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, because we are in this sinful state, this corrupt nature. We are depraved and we are separated from God, dead in our trespass and sins. But such is the mercy of God. And that leads me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-9. through It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, And raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now catch this. Verse 7, That in ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, though we were by nature children of wrath, rebels against God, God was rich in mercy. And He saved us by grace. And what was the reason? Uh, so that we would, verse 7, in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity, for eons and eons, from age to age, Christ will be glorified. We will see the exceeding riches and kindness that flows forth from His love towards us. And that while we were sinners and we were in no way seeking after Him, He intervened in our lives graciously. Isn't that a wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is all God's doing. Every bit of it. It is by grace, God's gift to us that we have been saved Grace and faith, both a gift from God. God 
graciously saved us and He graciously gave us the faith to believe Him. This is not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, if, if we believe that God saved us by grace, but, by grace, but it was our faith, it was our faith, then you can still boast, right? And isn't that what this verse is saying? Is that there is no room for any boasting whatsoever. It was all God's gracious intervention in our lives. The gift of grace and faith, it was all a gift from Him. In light of all of these other verses I shared with you about the condition of man, God was rich in mercy. And He, by grace, saved us. Gave us the faith to believe and to come to know Him and to worship Him. And for all of eternity, we will be experiencing the, the riches and the grace of our Lord Jesus in heaven and worshiping Him in the way that He deserves to be worshipped. Now, there is a reason for me going through all of that. What that ought to do in the heart of a believer is first bring us to a place of total humility. Total humility. Nothing less will do because we have to understand that we brought nothing to the table. That it was God's mercy, it was His gracious intervention, and it was not because there was anything lovable or redeemable about us. It was all God. It ought to bring us to a place of gratitude and a place of worship as we recognize what a wonderful thing God has done. We ought to daily thank Him afresh and praise Him for His mercies. And it ought to give us compassion for other people who are struggling. Because unfortunately, oftentimes I, I look around and I see even Christians who have been delivered from this lot. They, they look at other people with... Um, with a judgmental or uh, critical spirit. And sometimes they even act like, well, I wouldn't do that if I were in that situation. Why can't they just, why can't they just stop doing that? What I did. And that, that's the attitude that comes from, I think, someone who doesn't recognize just what God saved them from and just how very little they had to do with it. And so that's what I think Paul is really trying to draw out at this point. We talked about the pagan, immoral, the idolater, and I mentioned that you know a number of us could probably relate with that person, uh, myself especially, but now Paul's going to turn and he's going to start dealing with the religious person, the moralist. But before he even gets there, he's going to deal with this other person. It took me a minute to kind of figure this out, but he's going to deal with this in-between person, and it's the hypocrite. It is the religious, judgmental hypocrite. That is who Paul is now setting his sights on. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And so, as I was considering this, a couple of stories uh, popped into my mind from the Gospels. A couple of uh, stories that Jesus tells. And I, I wanted to frame this message within those parables, if I may. So if I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm sure most of us in here would say that we know the story of the prodigal son, right? We know that story very well. We love it. It pulls on our heartstrings. We, we, that is, so many of us in here, that's our prayer that God would, would redeem, that He would rescue those prodigals in, all, in our families, um, some, some of us in here are children and, or even parents. And uh, we love that story, but there's more to that story than that. So in verse 1 of chapter 15 in Luke, why don't you go ahead and turn there. Turn to Luke 
chapter 15. I'm spending some extra time today uh, setting up the, the framework for this because we're only looking at four verses in Romans. So I want you not to get too worried if halfway through I'm still in the introduction. We're not going to be covering a whole chapter on top of that. So in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, Jesus explains to us the point of these parables that He's getting ready to give. Or basically, it gives us some indication, I should say. So, verse 1, it says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Him to hear Him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He spoke this parable to them, saying... And He's going to give three parables in this chapter. And they're born out of this, this uh, judgmentalism that the Pharisees are throwing at Jesus and at the people that Jesus is uh, spending time with, these so-called sinners. So you've got the religious person here who says, look at what he's doing. He's receiving, he's eating with, he's spending time with sinners. How dare he? And so in light of that, Jesus first, he tells the parable of the, the 99 sheep there was a hundred, one got away, so the shepherd left the ninety-nine sheep to go after the one wayward shepherd. Or the one wayward sheep, sorry. Um, that was how much one sinner means to God. You know, you got ninety-nine righteous people here, but you have one who strays, and he would leave the ninety-nine to find the one. They look down on sinners with derision, these Pharisees, but God doesn't look at them that way. And so Jesus tells that. Then there's the story of the ten coins. There was a lady that had ten coins. She lost one. She panicked. She, she began to sweep the whole house over until she found this coin. And then when she found it, she called her neighbors and they celebrated. They rejoiced together. And over and over, Jesus says, there will be that kind of celebration in heaven with the angels for every sinner who comes to Christ, for every sinner that repents. But then He gets to the, the capstone story of this chapter, the prodigal son. And we know the story. This young man, he, he despises his father and he doesn't care anything about his dad or his family. All he wants is his inheritance. And so he says, give me my inheritance. And he, his dad gave it to him. You imagine how that must have broken the father's heart. And he goes off and it says he wasted it all with prodigal living. He had a wild, debauched life and he spent all of his money. And then he was broke. And then he was in trouble and he couldn't afford to live and his living conditions were awful, and he came to the place where he thought, you know, if maybe if I can just go back, my father will take me as a hired servant. That would be better than what my life has come to right now. So he goes back, hoping that perhaps the father would receive him as a, a servant, but that's not what happens. The father sees him coming from a long distance, which tells us he was looking, waiting, watching, hoping. And when he sees his son, what does he do? He runs after him. And that, like that song we sang earlier, that's, I totally believe that's what that comes from. The father ran after the son. And that's very significant. That was a very undignified thing for an elder to do in that culture in that day. But he didn't care. He abandoned all of that and he ran after his son. Well, there's another part to this story that we often stop short of. There was another son. There was another son in this story. He was an older brother. 
And so he, he kind of figures out, hey, something's going on here. They're back at the house. They can hear music. They can hear uh, a celebration happening because they were, they, they, through a feast, they celebrated the fact that the, that the wayward son had come back. And the brother finds out about it. It says this in verse 25 of Luke 15. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Verse 28 says that he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So there should be celebration because the, the son who was lost has been found. He's been restored. But the older brother doesn't like this at all. What is his attitude? It's one of uh, being judgmental. He said, you know what? I did everything right. I did this, I did that, and you never rewarded me, you never thanked me, and now this son of yours comes in and you do this for him. And so that's a self-righteousness that Jesus was addressing. That was the same thing that the, the Pharisees were displaying there in the beginning of the chapter, and that is who this person represents. The religious hypocrite. The judgmental man. So you have the, you have the sinner, you have the immoral person, and then you have the religious hypocrite. Well, in Luke 18, you can flip there. Luke 18, verse 9. Same kind of situation. Verse 9 says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they despised others. Alright, so Jesus tells a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This would be the guy to whom God would say, that's filthy rags. That's filthy rags. Verse 13, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So these stories are very similar. You've got these four characters here. You have two so-called righteous people, and you have two sinners. And what they all had in common was they were all bad. Two of them knew it, two of them didn't. 
And then two of them became saved, redeemed, but the other two were still lost. Still thinking that they were good. Still thinking that they were deserving. Still in their judgmental state. You know, just as the father ran to the prodigal son, he also went out to the older brother. But you know what? The older brother refused to come in. He refused. And that's what self-righteousness can do. Entitlement. I deserve. How dare you? Don't you see what I have done? You owe me. And then to see other people get grace? Oh, they hate that. If you see someone receive mercy and your heart rejoices within you, that is, that's, a, that's a good sign. That's wonderful. If you see someone uh, receive mercy and you get angry... Uh, or you feel some sense of uh, some sort of a critical spirit, that's, a, that's a, a dangerous place to be. That's something that we all have to be so very careful about. If you see somebody fall into some sin and your, your thought is, well, they brought that on themselves, they deserve this, that is a dead, deadly dangerous attitude to have. When you see someone receive mercy... It ought to cause you to fall even more in love with God, recognizing that you need that mercy just like they do. You did, you needed it then, and you need it now more than ever. And so that's the, the whole point I'm trying to make here, is that when we recognize who we were and who we are, it ought to humble us. It ought to cause us to fall more in love with God and to be more grateful to Him when we see other people struggling, we ought to be more compassionate towards them. When we see the struggling person lifted up and receive mercy and grace, our hearts ought to swell within us with gratitude and rejoicing. And so here, in Romans chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul is going to deal with the judgmental hypocrites, the people who don't do that, the people who are, who are uh, on the other end, the... the the brother, the older brother, or the Pharisee that Jesus addressed. This is who Paul is going to deal with. Verse 1, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So therefore here, uh, it refers back to the very end of chapter 1 where Paul lists all of those sins. I think there's like 20, 20 different things mentioned in that list that these people were guilty of. People who had rejected the revelation that was given to them of God. Instead, they suppressed that in unrighteousness and God gave them over to, to a debased mind. Uh, and they began to engage in all of these horrific acts. And Paul lists them in detail. And then, verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, in light of all of that, you are inexcusable, who stand in judgment of the people who do those things, yet you do the same thing. So he's dealing with hypocrisy here. He's dealing with ju uh, judgmental hypocrisy. Now, the word hypocrite it is used regularly in the New Testament and it speaks of an actor, someone who wears a mask. And especially uh, in ancient theater, it was very common for one character, one person to play multiple characters and they might wear different masks. 
And so that is the word from which we get the word hypocrite. So it's somebody pretending to be something other than what they really are. And we might look at someone, oftentimes this happens, especially in the church. You'll see someone who's struggling with sin um, and somehow they get pegged as a hypocrite. That's not the case. You know, I think we can all be honest with ourselves. I don't think anyone in here would raise their hand and say that they are without sin. I don't think anyone in here is carrying stones, waiting to throw it. Just can't wait. Um, but a person who professes to be that, the person who pretends as though they are righteous, even though they certainly have sin, we all fall short, and then they use themselves as the righteous standard and they point the finger at the other person as though they were less than. That, that is hypocrisy. And Paul says, you're inexcusable. That is, you have no ground to stand on. You have no case. Um, this idea of, of no ground to stand on is kind of a, a legal term. You know, I've, I've heard it said that um, it's not good to uh, throw dirt because you'll only lose ground. And so that's essentially what, what it's talking about here. You, you have no ground to stand on, you have no case. Because the very thing that you're judging other people over, you're doing it too. You're doing it too. You who judge and practice the same thing. That's what Paul says. And so I was thinking about this. Is this person literally doing the same things that are in that list in chapter 1? Or is it the same kind of things or, or what? And some commentators suggest that he's talking to people who literally are doing the same Thing. And that to me is, is hard to wrap my mind around because it seems so ridiculous, does it not? But you know that kind of thing happens all the time. In the 90s, the early 90s, there was a, a very popular pastor. This is, uh, it might have even been in the late 80s and it's hard for me to even remember all the names and specifics of this. But there was a, a very popular pastor and he got busted in... Um, by the police, he was actually caught on camera um, uh, engaging in, in sexual acts with a, a prostitute and doing drugs and all that. It was, it was a horrible, horrible thing. And he was publicly humiliated because of it. And other pastors, this other pastor in particular, stood up and railed on that guy relentlessly. It was ruthless. And he was just beating on him for what he had done. Well, guess what? Anybody, can anybody guess what happened? That guy got busted for the same thing. Same thing. And so that happens. And people can, people can be engaging in the same thing and judging other people for doing it. And sometimes it's like you see somebody doing something and you, you feel uh, high and lifted up because you're not doing that. But at the same time, you're guilty of so many other kinds of sins. And that's what Jesus addresses on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at another woman to lust uh, in your heart, you are guilty. You know, so someone might look at somebody who fell in adultery and really come down on them, judge them in their hearts, criticize that person for what they've done, but inwardly, they're just as guilty. They're doing the same thing. And Jesus said that if you have anger towards a brother, you're guilty of, of murder. And that's extreme. But that is the level of righteousness that God expects. 
It's not about outward. It's not about externals. It's about the heart. And God takes it to a whole nother level. So He says, if you're just angry with your brother, sinfully angry, you're guilty of murder. And here's the thing. The reason I believe for this is because what that essentially proves is that you would do the same thing if the circumstances were just right. And that's what uh, often comes out with judgmentalism is I would never do that. I would not do that. Well, here's the thing. Yes, you would. Yes, you would because you're already guilty of it in your heart. And if the circumstances were just right, you would probably fall into it too. And so that's why God hates that judgmental spirit. That's why God hates pride and arrogance when a person is lifted up and they think, I would never do that. I can't believe that they did that. I can't believe that they would do that. And then oftentimes those people, they fall. They fall too. Um, Paul says that the person who does this condemns their self. They, they condemn themselves, sorry. And uh, that is so true because if you have knowledge enough to say, I see this, and it's wrong, and how dare you, you really have no excuse for your own sins. Because if you are able to look at someone else's problems and assess their issue, then you clearly should be able to assess your own, right? And that's kind of the point that Paul is making here. And I couldn't think of a better story than in Second Samuel, King David. King David finally came to a place in his kingdom where everything was going right. And he was powerful, and he was reigning over his kingdom, and... He decided not to go out to war as was the, the, the practice for the kings in that time of year. He didn't. He stayed home. And while he was on his roof one evening, he looked over on another rooftop and saw a, a lady bathing. And so he was tempted. He called upon her. Bathsheba was her name. She came over. They slept together. She got pregnant. Well, she was married. And she was married to a soldier in David's army. And so David called on this soldier invited him to come home, take some time off from war, thinking that then he would sleep with his wife and then it would, that would cover that up. She was pregnant, but she was pregnant by Uriah. And uh, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He was so honorable. He said, how can I go and stay in my home, stay with my wife when my fellow soldiers are in the field fighting? And so David had him killed. David had Uriah killed in battle. It was, it was a setup. And then David took Bathsheba as his wife and put on this show like he was this benevolent king who would take this widow in as his own wife and care for her. And no one would ever know that the baby was actually conceived in, in this adulterous scandal. Well, David was called out. For about a year he lived in this sin, this hidden sin. And there are some psalms that he wrote during this time and he talked about how his bones wasted away in him in the sin. Well, the, the prophet Nathan comes in. And he comes up to him and he tells him this story. He says, David, there was this, this poor man who had this sweet little lamb, this little ewe lamb. It was like his daughter. And he raised it up and it ate with him and drank with his family and they loved this little lamb. Then there was a rich man who had great flocks. And there was a traveler who came and the rich man refused to take from his own flock and, and feed this man. So what did he do? He went and stole this little ewe lamb from this guy and killed it. Well, you know what David did? David rose up in vehement anger and said, this guy is going to die for what he did and restore fourfold. And then Nathan pointed his long prophetic finger at David and said, you're the man. 
David, you did this. And then David understood the, the light bulb, as it were, went off in his head, and he knew the story was about him. He did that. And he broke down, and he wept, and he repented. But that's, that's what we do. That's exactly what we do. Our sins look really bad on other people. Really bad. And uh, we can be guilty of some horrendous thing and then see somebody else and rise up in judgment. And David went so far as to say, this man will surely die for what he did. And then he come to realize it was him. It was him. And that, that is what's natural for human uh, beings, men and women. Um, and it's just amazing how easily this actually happens, how often it happens. And so with that, I wanted to take some time and just talk about judgmentalism. What it is, what it isn't. Because I don't know if you all know this. I think you probably do that we have been deemed as the most judgmental people in the world. And so I'm sorry I don't have trophies to give out to everybody in the room today, but we would all get one because guess what? We are the biggest judgmental hypocrites in the world. Did you know that? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you've already been told that. And so I want to address this. Are we indeed judgmental hypocrites? Because, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 1-2, through 2, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So, according to this, according to Jesus, we're never allowed to judge anyone under any circumstance. We're not allowed to call something for what it is. We're not allowed to make matter-of-fact statements. We're not allowed to assess situations we none of that none of that because you're a judge you're being judgmental and you're not supposed to judge according to Jesus now people love to hurl this at Christians that's what they do well years ago I came across this little video Charles Barkley I don't know how many people in here know him but he was a a basketball player back in the day and he was uh, wanting to get into politics I don't know if he ever did but he was gonna be a Democrat and so he was uh, on, I think it was CNN, I could be wrong, but he was talking to Wolf Blitzer and he was being interviewed and he was railing, bashing conservative uh, Republicans and he said, you know, they're a bunch of fake Christians. And then he, he began to just go off and, and spew this, this hate, really. And this is what he said. Every time I hear the word conservative, it makes me sick to my stomach. Because they're really just a fake Christian, as I call them. That's all they are. Well, uh, Wolf Blitzer didn't let that go later on in the interview. He said, you said this earlier. Would you care to elaborate on that a little bit? And so he said, well, I think they want to be judge and jury like I'm for gay marriage. It's none of my business if gay people want to get married. I'm pro-choice. And I think that Christians, first of all, they're not supposed to judge other people. But they're the most hypocritical judge of people we have in the country. And it bugs the expletive out of me. They act like they're Christians. They're not forgiving at all. And so, you know, that, that wasn't new to me. I, I have heard those kinds of things before. But that was, that was pretty harsh. That was pretty hard. That was how he, he felt about it. And so he was told by the, the guy interviewing him, people are going to have something to say about this. And he said, I don't care. I don't work for them. Well, people had something to say about it. And so I, I went online and I found a number of articles. And I thought, let me just read one pastor's response to this. 
Reverend Paul Vigiano. He says, If Barclay is against people taking it upon themselves to be judge and jury, what of his accusation against the fake Christians? Did he give them a fair trial with an unbiased judge and an impartial jury of their peers? It appears Barclay has no problem being the judge, jury, and plaintiff, but then we all know Barclay never fouled anyone. Not only does he step on his own foot by judging people for being judgmental, he fails to recognize that the biblical mandate against judging does not consist of a commitment to moral neutrality. So he was being a hypocrite in that moment by being so judgmental of other people and saying that they were being judgmental. Well, that looked an awful lot like what he was doing. He went so far as to say, they make me sick, sick to my stomach, fake Christians. Wow, that's not judgmental. Well, he goes on to say this, Jesus made it a regular practice to expose evil deeds. The judge not words from the Sermon on the Mount were Jesus' castigation of the Pharisees who judged others, not based upon the righteous decrees of God, but based upon their confidence in their own righteousness. A kind of judgmental attitude Barclay may wish to ponder. And so that's, that's what it boils down to. Jesus was not saying that we cannot uh, take a stance on certain issues. So Barclay was basically saying he is pro-choice. Um, but, and that's okay. But if you are um, against that, if you're pro-life, then you're a hypocrite. You're, a, you're, a, you're, a, uh, you're judgmental. And so are we to remain morally neutral? Is that what Jesus was saying? Absolutely not. He was not saying that we can't call something what it is, that we can't exercise discernment, that we can't take an ethical stance or make matter-of-fact statements. Jesus calls us to do that, guys. He calls us to do that. And so don't, don't let people beat you up or back you into a corner or accuse you of something or use our Lord's words in such a way to manipulate you into a place where you can't say the truth, where you can't speak the truth. Now, we don't want to come across as judgmental. We don't want to come across as critical. And a lot of people in the church do do that, unfortunately. But you can't make such a broad, sweeping statement, okay? So for you to call something what it is, for you to stand up for the truth, for you to take a side does not make you a judgmental hypocrite. Do you know that? You need to know that, okay? And so don't, don't get backed into a corner there. What it boils down to is we're not supposed to impugn people's character or their motives. And that's where judgmentalism really comes through. And so I want to just give you a few examples of how this happens. And some of these might be um, some really hot-button issues. Um, but, you know, I'm just going to go there. So, immigration. That's a very heated issue in our country right now, is it not? And you got people on one side of the aisle and people on the other who are diametrically opposed to each other on this issue. But what I will sometimes hear people say is things like this. Immigrants, the illegal immigrants, they just come over here illegally and they abuse our system and they take welfare and they take our jobs. And Have you heard this kind of thing before? I'm sure that we all have. 
Well, you don't know that. You don't know them. You've not been in their situation. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know exactly why they came over here. But here's what you do know. If I were in their situation, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. And that's what this boils down to every time. Every time. And it's, it's, I think we're all guilty of this, guys. All guilty of this. Um, we can look at, at drug addicts and think, why don't they just stop? Why don't they just stop? Don't they, don't they want their, their, their kids back? Or don't they want this or that? I mean, I, I, I would just stop, you know? Just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, that whole thing. People have that attitude. Christians have that attitude. And it's like, you didn't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You were dead in your trespass and sin. You were hopelessly and desperately lost. And God intervened in your life. It's only by grace that you are saved. You can't turn around and look at someone else and say, why can't you just get it together? I did. You can't do that. Um, you know, homeless, the homeless issue, so often the first thing you're going to hear is they're just lazy. Why can't they just get a job? Uh, and, you know, there are all kinds of issues that lead to homelessness. Uh, there's mental illness. Some people, life just takes such a tragic turn that they end up in that place. Some people do. They really don't want to work. They're, they're, that is the life that they would, would have for themselves is to, to be uh, homeless. And, and I know some folks who are very much that way. Um, but you can't just broad brush that and say they're all lazy. They're all lazy and they just want to manipulate the system. You don't know that. But here's the thing. If you were in that situation, you wouldn't do that. You'd go get a job. You would do what it takes to get up on your feet and get it together. You see what I'm saying here, guys? There are so many different ways in which we can look at somebody else's plight and make these broad, sweeping statements about them and say we know exactly why they are how they are. We know exactly why they, they are... And we wouldn't do that. We would not do that. And, I, you know, I could keep going. Um, here, here was just another one, for instance. Uh, your boss, your, your boss, your employer, you didn't get the raise that maybe you did deserve to get. Well, you might be tempted to say that guy is just stingy. He's greedy. He doesn't care about his employer, employees, right? But you don't know that. You don't know what the situation may be financially there at the, at the workplace. But here's what you do know. If you were in his shoes, you would be very generous. You would be very gracious. You would give. You see where I'm going with this, guys? And this is the thing that we have to watch out for. This is the self-righteousness that the Pharisees were exhibiting. This is the thing that Paul was putting his finger on and saying, don't you look at somebody else and accuse them, especially knowing that you are prone to or maybe even as guilty of the same things. So, um, as I said, I think that uh, we've got to be so careful about using ourselves as the standard. And if we do, if we look down at other people for whatever the issue may be, we may not have the best understanding of Ephesians chapter 2 that I talked about earlier. Recognizing what we've been rescued out of. And therefore, the kind of humility we ought to be walking in, the kind of compassion and grace we ought to be extending to other people. Well, real, real quickly, let's finish this up. I'm out of time. Verse 2, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. God judges according to the truth. See, He doesn't look at 
the, the, the clearly guilty person and say, man, I'm going to drop the hammer on them. But this guy, you know, he's not perfect, but he's not as bad as that guy, so I'm going to go a little more lenient on him. No, God judges according to what is right. He is perfectly just, and He has to be a, a righteous judge in that way. And so, it's very clear. God's judgment is either against you, as Paul says here in verse 2, it's against those who practice such things, or God's judgment is against His Son on your behalf, on my behalf. Those are the, really those are the two options. We're saved by grace, we're saved by God's gift to us, or we are judged by our deeds. We are judged according to our own wickedness. We are held accountable for the things that we have done. That's, that's the two options. That's the glory of the Gospel, guys. The glory of the Gospel. That this was us, dead in our trespass and sin. And no righteousness to bring to God. And accountable to Him as children of wrath. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever put their faith and their trust in Him would have eternal life. We would no longer be under God's judgment. You're rescued from God's judgment if you put your trust in the finished work of Christ. So, you're either going to be judged for your works or you're going to be forgiven by the works of another. Does that make sense? That's the Gospel, guys. We're all in the same boat here. We were all this person. And for some people in this room who have not put their faith in Christ, you're still in this place. But today, you can put your trust in Him for salvation and you can be forgiven of your sins and you can have a loving relationship with your Heavenly Father. Well, verse 3, Paul says, And you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. So it says you think that you can judge other people, do the same things, and escape the judgment of God? Well, I have a quote here from uh, MacArthur, and it says this, The secret hope of the hypocrite is that God will somehow judge by a standard lower than perfect truth and righteousness. He knows enough to recognize the wickedness in his heart, but he hopes vainly that God will judge him in the same superficial way that most others judge him and that he judges himself. He plays a kind of religious charade wanting to be judged by his appearance rather than by his true character. And because most men accept him for what he pretends to be, as most hypocrites, he assumes God will do the same. But as God cautioned Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his height or his stature, for God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. That's what God looks at. God is looking at the heart. So the answer to Paul's question here is we, we won't escape. There is no escaping. God is a righteous judge who judges according to that which is absolutely true and right, and He can do no other. And so His judgment will be poured out in full force either on those of us who are accountable to Him for our sins or it's poured out on His Son in our stead. The glory of the Gospel. Well, verse 4, or you, Do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? 
So basically, do you despise the riches of His goodness? That's the question He's asking to this person who Paul is talking to. The word despise, it means to think little of. It means nothing. It means nothing. Does God's goodness mean nothing to you? Do you despise His goodness? Are you going to continue on in your religious charade? Are you going to continue on thinking that you're good enough? Are you going to continue on thinking that you somehow are the righteous standard? And that everyone else may be guilty, but you will escape? That is despising the riches of His goodness. The word goodness here is His common grace. It's the good things that God allows the whole world to enjoy. Just because He's good. It is the, the revelation of Himself to a sinful world. God was good in revealing Himself to us. God allows us rain. The Bible says He allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God gives the sun to, to bring forth the harvest. God gives us family. God gives us coffee. I mean, that is a common grace if there ever was one, right? And God has done these things to lead us to repentance. It says forbearance. Do we despise the goodness, the forbearance? That, that word means to hold back. It speaks of a truce between warring parties. God could just destroy us at the first infraction that we commit against His holiness, but He doesn't. He holds that back. And the long-suffering here, it speaks of that duration, that length of time in which God is exercising goodness and forbearance towards us. And the purpose is that we would come to repentance. That's what ought to draw someone to God, guys. I know people who come to God because they're scared. They, they come to God because of fear of hell and all of those things. And that is legitimate. But can I tell you something? Fear is a weak motivation. Because for years I was afraid of going to jail, but do you think it stopped me from breaking the law? Absolutely not. Love is the highest motivation. And to know that God desires us to come to Him and it's by His kindness and the riches of His his goodness that He draws us to Him. But Paul says you despise that. You cast that aside. It means nothing to you. Repentance is God's reason. That's what God is trying to do. That's what the Gospel is about. It's about saving wicked men and women from their sins and from His wrath and bringing us into a new life and a place of love, a, play, a, a, a relationship with Him. That's what God is doing. That is God's desire. Did you know that? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. We're going to close with this. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but here it is. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering. He waits a long time. He extends an awful lot of grace and kindness towards us in the hopes that we would turn and that we would come to Him. That's His desire. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is, to turn away from that old life, to turn away from the old things that we gave ourselves to, and to turn to God and to give ourselves to Him entirely and to be born again, to be saved by grace, to be saved by the cross, to surrender our lives to Him in holy love and devotion, and to forever know Him and worship Him into eternity from age to age forevermore. Amen?
That's God's desire. Have you experienced that? Joe, you can come on up. Have you experienced that? Because that's God's desire for you. Maybe, maybe this um, being the pagan idolater we talked about a couple of weeks, maybe that's, that's you. Maybe that's where you are at. And God has saved many of us from that place. Turn. Repent. Today is the day of salvation. You can walk away from that and you can walk to God and God will receive you to Himself. Maybe you are the religious person. Maybe you are a moralist. Maybe you think you're good. Maybe you think that based on your works that somehow God's going to accept you. And now you see by the Word it's just not the case. Repent. Turn away from your religiosity. Turn away from your morality as though that would save you. Maybe you're the, the hypocrite. Maybe you're the judgmental hypocrite. You've been looking down on other people. And you've been thinking very highly of yourself and judging other people based on your own sinful standards. Repent. Turn from that today. Confess that to the Lord. He will forgive you. Give your life to Him. And you know what? He will come running after you. Amen? God will come running after you. His goodness will come running to you. And such is the goodness and the kindness of our God. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You that You save us, Lord, to the uttermost. From the guttermost to the uttermost. It doesn't matter where we're at, Father. We're not so far away from You that Your arm cannot reach down and save. So whether it's immorality, God, sin, whether it's self-righteousness or hypocrisy, whatever the case may be, Lord, we're not beyond Your touch, beyond Your reach. And You are running after us, Lord, today. Once again, this very day, You have displayed Your goodness and Your kindness by giving us the chance to hear the truth and to respond to it. So we respond, Lord. We tell You that we love You. We praise You. We recognize that we never earned it. We could never earn it. We weren't good then. We're really not good now, God. We're prone to wander and we're desperately in need of You just as much today as we have ever been, God. And Your mercies are brand new every day. Great is Your faithfulness. You are so good to us, Lord, and we love You. In Jesus' name, amen.